In the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to take some time to reflect with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a time when Jesus reveals his heart in a very deep way. Because when people suffer the barriers and the facades and the all the hidden postures that we can have kind of fall away. Not that those existed in the life of Christ, but certainly he reveals himself and reveals his own heart more deeply in the Garden of Gethsemane than perhaps in many of the other places that we find in the Gospels. The hearts of those around him are also revealed. His disciples, uh, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, Judas, his betrayer. And so we're going to take the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 and following. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him couple of things that jump out as already. Jesus went as was his custom. The Last Supper has just taken place. Jesus has spent these intimate moments with his disciples. The words that he reflected on and transmitted his love to them, his desires, uh, his last words. And then he goes out as his custom. In moments of difficulty, it's helpful to have routines and habits that we fall back upon. And Jesus does that with his disciples in this moment of difficulty. They go out to the Mount of Olives. Where was this Mount of Olives? Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, been to this place of pilgrimage and have seen the Mount of Olives is a place just across the Kidron Valley. Uh, so from the gate of the temple, you can look across the valley, very deep and profound gully uh, that has been carved away through years of erosion. And on the other side, uh, are a series of graves. The, the Jewish people have many, many gravestones there on the side of the hill because they believe that that's where the Messiah was going to come from. Uh, even after the times of Jesus, that's where they had their, their graves placed because they wanted to be the first to welcome the Messiah when he came. Interestingly, that's where Jesus comes from on the night of the Last Supper. He's there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And in that area, because the the Erosion over the years has taken away so much of the land. It's also carved caves in the side of the hill. And it was a common place for people to go, who were, you know, people who were travelers coming to Jerusalem. Um, and they would spend the time, spend the night in the refuge of those caves there. And it says that this was Jesus' custom, as it would have been. He was an itinerant preacher, came with his disciples often to Jerusalem. And this was the place that they probably most often stayed while they were in Jerusalem. And this Mount of Olives is covered with olive trees at the time of Jesus. Still to this day, there are many olive trees there. But the olive trees form a beautiful grove of, of these uh, trees that uh, sway in the breeze. And especially in a gentle uh, evening, they will be there uh, with their foliage and just casting shadows and, and creating an ambiance of prayer, of mystical reality of what's uh, taking place. And the disciples followed him. That's a profound statement. The disciples followed him. This is what they've been doing for the last three years, following Jesus. And this is what we're called to do too, to follow Jesus, even when we don't see exactly where he's going what's happening, what's transpiring, what's going to take place next. Even with the, the foreboding that the disciples had, that terrible things were to come, they follow him. That's, 
Thomas, the one who would become the great doubter later on, had said in the prior passage in John chapter 11, he said, let us go with him to die. Uh, sort of fatalism, but whatever it was, they were following Jesus. And Peter, who had professed, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I will never deny you. And at the Last Supper, Jesus had told him, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. And so they followed Jesus. And when he had come to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. We pray also in our own lives that we not be subjected to temptations and difficulties beyond what God gives us the grace to bear and to carry. Oftentimes when we are caught up in our suffering, whether it's a physical or moral suffering, we don't see the end of it. We don't see any hope. We don't see uh, that it's even possible to carry the cross any further. I can remember times like that going through uh, the cancer when uh, the, the pain, um, especially when I was going through some back pain uh, due to the, the dialysis and to the chemo, going through those pains, there's times when you just, you don't know if you can carry that burden anymore. And yet without God, of course we can't. But with his grace, all things are possible. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. We pray because that puts us back into God's perspective and we're not just seeing things as human beings do. And because it's only with God's grace that we can persevere. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So there in the geography of the hill, caves are a little bit lower down because that's where the water reaches more readily. And then coming out of the caves, up slightly up the hill, there was a place, place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which means they, there was an oil press there. The uh, olives, when they're grown, they have to be shaken down from the trees, they're gathered up by the farmers, and then they're placed into this grinding or wrist mill where they're crushed by a stone. And that stone goes over the, the olives and crushes out until the, the oil from inside of those olives is running out and is gathered into a retaining bin. And here, Jesus is crushed by the sins of the world. He kneels down and prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this chalice from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So often we ourselves struggle. We understand what it is not to want to do something we know we ought to do. Uh, to struggle against temptation. And the greatest temptations are not to do evil, but oftentimes I think to do a lesser good, to take the easier road. Father, if you are willing, remove this chalice from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And this is how we are to pray. Jesus teaches us over and over again in his life how to pray, how we are to pray. He teaches us the Our Father. He teaches his disciples to set aside time to go up on the mountainside when things are particularly crazy and busy, not to get caught up in the active activity and the activism, 
but to set aside time for listening to God, speaking to God, renewing in our heart those those truths that we know from our own life experience, from Scripture, from the teachings of the church, uh, all those truths about God that give us strength and security and solidity and vision for how to move forward. He teaches us how to pray. And in his prayer here, Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't be looking for our will. I mean, how many experiences have we had of when we do our own will that leaves us dissatisfied? When we do the things that we think will give us pleasure, end up just giving us frustration. You know, the true joy and true pleasure in life do not come from doing our own will, but from doing God's will. And why is that? Because God created us. He knows us. He knows what we're made of. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what will make us happy. And he desires the greatest good for us because he loves us. And so whenever we we totally give ourselves over to God's plan, to God's will, even if we don't see it clearly, even if it doesn't seem to make sense to us, he fulfills us. He, he, he fills our soul. And Jesus he feels this struggle within him because, yes, he is God, but he's also fully human. And in his human nature, he wrestles with embracing the Father's will, embracing God the Father's will. Just like all of us experience in our own lives. The letter to the Hebrews says that he has suffered and underwent all the similar types of temptations that we did, yet without sin. And that is why he is the high priest of the new covenant. Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced the difficulty of responding to what God was asking of him. But he didn't cop out. He didn't take the easier path. And why? Because he prayed. Because he turned to the Father. And he he reached out in faith and in hope and in love. And said, Father, if you're willing, remove this chalice from me. But not my will, but yours be done. If we could pray like that, if we could pray with that sense of abandonment to God's will in our lives and to his plan, we would be so much happier. We'd be so filled with his joy. And if we could let go of our own will, how many struggles and difficulties that provides in our own lives. Jesus teaches us to pray. And then there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is the reality of what takes place every time that we pray, even though we don't see it. We don't physically notice that there's an angel there caring for our needs or giving us consolation. But we know the truth is that when we pray, God is present. He hears all of our prayers, even if we don't think he hears. God hears our prayers. And oftentimes he sends his consolations, whether in the form of people around us, an answer to our prayer, consoling angel um, or even just the solace of know that we are offering up our suffering for a purpose this is why St. Paul could say I make up in my own flesh that which is lacking in the passion of Christ for the sake of his body the church if St. Paul hadn't said those words I I think we would have uh, clearly written the person off as a heretic who said that? I mean, what could be missing in the in the passion of Christ? I mean, He's God. He has given everything for us. He is He is He is perfect. What could be lacking in His sacrifice? And yet, that's what Saint Paul says. 
we, in our own flesh, as Christians, by offering up our sacrifice, our sufferings, our pains, our difficulties in life, the struggles that we're going through, we unite those to Christ. And in some mysterious way, Christ takes those sufferings and makes something beautiful and good out of them. And this is something that you can only understand when you live it. It, it, it kind of baffles the human mind and the human way of seeing things. And yet I experienced it in such a profound way over the last uh, 18 months when I went through the multiple myeloma cancer and the various struggles, both physically and psychologically and morally, that I went through during this time, I was offering them up. And I was offering them up for the purification of the church. And there was such a joy that came from that. Sometimes we think that joy and suffering are antithetical. But that's not the case. The deepest joys come when we offer in love our suffering. We're united to Christ. And then there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Those joys and consolations come when we pray. When we seek out God's will and not our own. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. For two millennia, people looked at this passage and went, what is it talking about here? Is there some sort of spiritual significance uh, behind these words? And only more recently, as medical knowledge has advanced, have doctors realized that something took place here that was more profound than we currently uh, realize. What was taking place is that the capillaries in Jesus' own uh, his body were broken through the stress, uh, through the stress of what he was undergoing. And in those cases where a human person go, undergoes such stress, the blood begins to seep out through the pores in the skin, and it looks like they're actually bleeding uh, or, or sweating blood, which is what Luke, uh, the gospel writer who's a doctor, uh, always uh, fixates upon the, the physical phenomenon that take place. Great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Why was Jesus in such stress? Well, clearly because of his knowledge of what's going to take place. He, he has divine knowledge and knows what's going to transpire in the passion and in his death. He, he's not looking forward to the suffering physically. He's not looking forward to the rejection, to the betrayal. And he, he can see all of that coming. But I think even more so is the weight of the sin of humanity that crushes down upon his shoulders, on his body, on his psyche at this time. He who has no sin, who is perfect, who is God, has to carry upon himself our sins our miseries, our, our stench. It is that sin which is so antithetical to God. It's the rejection of God and the rejection of his love that is, it's the opposite of love. And God who is love and Jesus who is the second person of the Blessed Trinity experiences this contrast, this complete contradiction with his entire being that is sin that weighs down upon him. And that's the stress that he feels at this point. Not just the foreboding of the physical reality that's going to take place. And the great drops of blood fall down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping 
because of their sorrow. Remember that passage from Isaiah, whose sorrow is like unto my sorrow. Okay, why were the disciples experiencing sorrow at this moment? Certainly Jesus had said some pretty cryptic things during the Last Supper. They had heard these prophecies of Jesus over the, the prior weeks. They had a foreboding of the the opposition that was growing among the Pharisees and Sadducees and high priests. They knew that things were very much on the edge in Jerusalem at this time. And that's why Thomas had said, let us go to die with him in Jerusalem. Why are they sorrowful? Because of all this, but also because they see the sorrow in Jesus. I think this is an important reality for us as Christians. Do I, do I feel the sorrow of Jesus? Do I feel the same sorrow that he feels when I, I see the sin in the world around me? Or do I elicit some sort of a, a, a sick pleasure uh, when I see sin and those who stray away from God and, and the brokenness of our world? I think as Christians, we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to suffer as he suffers, to suffer with the love that's in his heart. And we remember that the only reason we suffer is because we love. If we, if we didn't love, we, we wouldn't care. And the more that we love someone, the more we open ourselves to suffering and being in sorrow with them. And in fact, the deepest sorrows in our lives come from those that we love the most. They have the capacity to inflict deep sorrow on us because we love them. And because we love them, we've opened ourselves up in vulnerability, and those wounds go very deep. The betrayal of a spouse, of a, of a, a parent, of a, a child, of a, of a trusted companion, those are the ones that go the deepest because we have loved. And so they're sleeping because of their sorrow. And Jesus says to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. A second time, Jesus exhorts us to pray. Should it be any surprise to us that we experience temptation and difficulties and struggles in our lives when we don't pray? When we don't have a habit of daily prayer, we don't have a habit of reaching out to the Lord in times of difficulty, and instead we turn to uh, pastimes and, you know, little uh, things to escape from our reality. Now, if, if we would truly overcome temptation and struggles and sorrow in our lives, we have to listen to the words of Jesus and his exhortation to pray. Why do you sleep? Rise and pray. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Betrayed by one of his closest friends. Sometimes we, we struggle with all the sins in the church and the, the failures of the ministers of the Lord. I've struggled deeply with the, my own failures, with the failures of fellow priests, priests who have left the priesthood, people who have let me down. So why am I surprised at that? Sin lurks in the hearts of each one of us. And that's why we have to pray not to be led into temptation. But for the grace of God, we are all sinners. We are all weak. We're all in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. 
Judas, one of Jesus' closest. You know, even Jesus was unable to touch the heart of Judas to the point that he wouldn't betray him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were about him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? That's in our, our nature, I think, as men to react uh, to, to violence in difficult situations with more violence, escalation, more revenge. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus comes to heal, to save, to redeem. Not to get even. Not to remain in bitterness and unforgiveness. Even from the cross, Jesus forgives. And he shows us with his example to live out what he told his disciples over and over again. How many times must I forgive my brother, Peter asked? Seven times? No, 70 times, seven times. No more of this. Jesus calls us as Christians to forgive, to let go. So ask our Lord for his grace and his healing. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and, chap and the captains of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Darkness settles across the Garden of Gethsemane. But ultimately we know that Jesus is the light of the world. And though he submits himself to suffering, death for our redemption, it is precisely through the cross that he brings about light, that he brings about life, that he introduces us to eternal life. In our own lives, we make up that which is lacking in the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Let's not run away from our suffering. Let's not try to escape from the difficulties that life presents to us. Let us not look for shortcuts in living out our vocation to the full, whatever that may be. Because when we follow in the footsteps of our Lord, when we learn to pray, when we do the Father's will, when we offer up our suffering in union with His, He brings about salvation, redemption, and eternal life. Spend this time reflecting on what our Lord wants to say to you in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do not be afraid to follow in his footsteps. May God bless you.